You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. have the wonderful privilege this morning to introduce my husband, <laughs> who will be bringing the message this morning. <laughs> so if you'd like to bow your heads with me, we'll pray for John this morning as he brings his message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful man who stands before us. We thank you for the message that you have brought uh, through him today. We pray that uh, your words would speak to us this morning and that we would uh, be touched and remember the true meaning of Christmas um, in this day as we celebrate all together, Father God. We pray for nerves. We pray that you would settle the butterflies (laughs) and that you would bring clear speech to John this morning. We thank you for the message we are about to receive and we pray blessing over us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jenna. I might just have a quick water. Um, Welcome, City Edge Church. This is the first time I have ever preached. So kind of helpful that we don't have a massive crowd. Everyone's gone away for Christmas and New Year's. Um, including Ian and Mel. So thank you very much, Tony and Rhonda, for for coming by and Tony for filling the shoes of Elder today temporarily. Um, (laughs) Apparently apparently you didn't know that. Um, Ian just said, come and sit in the big chair. The big chair. Well, you're certainly in the big chair today. Um, Thank you very much for coming along. Really appreciate it. As you all know, my name is John Gould. My beautiful wife, Jenna, just prayed for me. This is more for the benefit of the recording, I guess. Uh, Everyone knows me here, I think. Um, This is Christmas season, so I want to preach on the Incarnation. Um, It's great that Psalm 18 that Merrily read out today was the story of a Redeemer, about God who is a a Saviour. So I want to preach on the Incarnation, and I want to actually lay a fair bit of groundwork. I may flood you with scripture today. uh, Instead of having one or two key texts, I'm probably going to have every single one of them on the screen. So hopefully you don't get overload, but uh, we'll we'll see how we go. Um, So we're going to pick up in Genesis 2. Uh, Before we get there, we learn in Genesis 1 that God is pre-existing, that in the beginning, God. Um, Before there was anything, before there was a beginning, there was God. We also learn that God created the heavens and the earth and all living creatures according to their kind. Uh, And he also created the first man, Adam. But where we pick up, he hasn't yet created the first woman, Eve. So in Genesis 2, 15 to 18 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him him a helper fit for him. So we see here in this short passage that um, God has uh, given a command to Adam. Um, Eve isn't yet created. Verse 17 speaks uh, of what is theologically called the covenant of works. God gives Adam a a task to fulfill. And a basic definition for the covenant of works is a covenant... Uh, The covenant of works refers to the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve implicitly in their pristine purity before the fall 
in which God promised them blessings for their obedience to his command. And we're going to touch on this again shortly. So moving on to Genesis chapter 3. The woman's been created by now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I find it very interesting to note in uh, Genesis 2, God made Adam first and then Eve as a helper for the task that God had given to Adam. And yet Satan directs his attack not at Adam, but at Eve. Uh, Not at the one in authority, but at uh, Adam's wife, in Adam's presence. And even today, Satan's line of attack is regularly, did God actually say? Um, Christians uh, who don't prioritise studying the word of God, and even new Christians, tend to be pretty susceptible to this kind of attack. Uh, Moving on to verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's important to note here that the nature of sinful man hasn't changed since that day. Sinners naturally run from God. They naturally hide from God. According to scripture, there is no such thing as a God seeker. Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So moving back to Genesis 3, verse 9, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's interesting to note who does the seeking here. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Another important point is God's response. He doesn't pour out fire and brimstone on rebellious sinners. In fact, Adam and Eve don't even physically die that day. Instead, God's approach is one of grace. His approach is not with a thundering voice of judgment, but a question. Where are you? Verse 10, and he, that's Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now the next verse, in verse 15, we actually see the first promise of the Messiah to come. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of the Lord of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see here the Christ, uh, the Messiah, just a title for Saviour, is promised from the very first page of Scripture. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that God promised, in Adam, promised Adam in chapter 2 that on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yet chapter 3 verse 17 says that in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. How do we reconcile this since Adam and Eve didn't actually die that day? Well, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show his immeasurable love, the immeasurable love of his grace, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Colossians 2 says a very similar thing about being dead in sin. We also want to notice that God's redemptive grace in banishing Adam and Eve from the garden and therefore the tree of life. By doing so, God ensured that mankind would not attain immortality before the Saviour had come to die, the sacrificial death to atone for the sins of his people. This banishment stopped mankind living forever as enemies of God with no hope of salvation. Now this is really important. God didn't need to do that. God didn't need to do any of this. He had every right to wipe out all of creation in judgment. When we ask God to give us what is owed to us, we are asking for death and judgment. God owes justice to rebels, but in his mercy and grace he offers redemption to all.
Now this same story, this Genesis story, when interpreted in the light of the person and work of Jesus by the Apostle Paul is seen in Romans 5. Verses 12 to 17 say, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, that being the Mosaic law, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if... By one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And I am demolishing that water. Um, If you don't mind, yeah. Thank you. So, so far I've been attempting to clearly describe the need for a saviour, that all mankind is unrighteous and cannot stand before a righteous and holy judge on that last day. And the second primary point so far is that scripture shows Adam and Jesus as two types of man. Theologically, this is called federal headship. Paul shows us that Adam is the natural head of mankind. But our problem is that Adam was a failure in the command God had given him. He failed miserably in the covenant of works. His sin tarnishes all his offspring. Every descendant of Adam is counted as being in Adam. That is, all are counted as being sinful by nature as a result of the sin of Adam. In other words, we all sin because we're sinners, like our father Adam. Jesus, however, is shown as the spiritual head of his sheep, the elect of God. Those who are in Christ were all once in Adam, but have since been spiritually resurrected. The technical term for this spiritual resurrection is called regeneration, but more commonly being born again. So remember Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Thanks, Tony following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So our problem is that we are naturally enemies of God. Our rebellion is both by nature as a result of Adam's sin but also by intention as a result of our own sin. We need another human representative 
someone who is truly one of us, but someone who can do what we have been unable to do since that day in the garden, to live a perfectly righteous life in our place as a man. This is where we finally get to the glorious truth of the incarnation of the Son. So that was all laying the groundwork for finally we're going to get there. Wayne Grudem, a uh, a theologian, says of the incarnation, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God becomes one with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. So, finally, in the incarnation, I want to highlight five key things and these are not exhaustive. I'll give you a list towards the end of uh, some more things that we're, uh, we're not touching on today. Number one, his virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord God, sorry, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 we see, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So the virgin birth gives us clear reason to believe a few things, quite a few things, but I've covered off three here. One, salvation is ultimately of the Lord. Virgin births don't happen every day. Two, Jesus was truly human. He gestated in his mother's womb. He was born. He aged. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. He ate. He tired. He slept, he wept, he bled, and he died. Number three, he wasn't a sinner because Adam isn't his father. While he was truly human, he wasn't stained by the sin of Adam because Jesus was eternally begotten of the father, not of Adam. The second point I want to bring up is God's character. To set the scene, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their feet are uh, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Sorry, I missed some verses there. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. doesn't really paint a, a nice picture of humanity at all. But, luckily, that isn't the end of the story. The most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verses 16, I'll go to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in Mark chapter 10 we see, For even the Son of Man came not to, serve, but to, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like Psalm 18 this morning, which was just spot on, God is a redemptive God. Even though scripture is quite clear that we don't deserve redemption, but, he's, but, but God, this redemptive God, isn't satisfied with just saving a few. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So remember those white robes. We're going to come back to them shortly. The third point I want to touch on is Christ fulfilling all righteousness as a human, the last Adam. I mentioned earlier the covenant of works in reference to Adam, blessings for obedience, death for disobedience. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I believe this is the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For surely I say to you, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then earlier in chapter 3, uh, the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the, uh, to the Jordan to John, the baptizer, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I might just let you stew on that for a minute. Then he, that's John the baptizer, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was not just a good man. He wasn't just a good teacher or a prophet. He was the perfect man. He lived the life that Adam should have lived and the life that we cannot live, having been stained by sin. Jesus, as he says, fulfilled all righteousness. Now, this may sound shocking to you, but we are actually saved by works. The works of Jesus in his life by fulfilling all righteousness and also in his death by his perfect atonement for us. All of which becomes ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone and to the glory of God alone. The fourth point. I'm getting through these pretty quick as well. Christ became the perfect substitute, the spotless sacrifice for his sheep. John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, we're not talking the Easter message today, but it's interesting. Um, Have you ever wondered why Jesus died within hours by being crucified when crucifixions would normally take days or sometimes weeks? Weeks, sometimes weeks. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. He willingly laid it down for his sheep. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 1 to 4 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, this is speaking of the the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just a little side note, when scripture speaks of blood, it tends to be referring to the life. Uh, Leviticus 17 shows us this, so it's talking about the, the life of bulls and goats. Then a little further on in, uh, in Hebrews, we see in uh, verses 11 to 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered 
for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the point I want to draw from these scriptures is that Christ became a human to redeem humans. He didn't become an angel to try to redeem angels. And that's why bulls and goats couldn't redeem humans. For further evidence, let's go uh, to Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation pretty much just means that by the life and the death of Jesus, He actually atoned for, bore the wrath of God for someone's sins, in, in this case ours. So God is actually rendered... Uh, kindly towards us as a result of Christ actually bearing that wrath. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. So the point I'm trying to draw out is that those bulls and goats, while they were a a picture of the, the sacrifice to come, they didn't ever actually perfectly atone. Christ needed to become a man to perfectly atone. But not just any man, a perfect man. The fifth point. Christ becomes our representative, our federal head, as I mentioned before, by faith alone. First Corinthians chapter 15 For as by a man came death that's Adam by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive Again Ephesians chapter 2 but God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of the works, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it is by faith that we are in him. And this is in stark contrast to being in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 again, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now I'm starting to wrap up. So finally I mentioned earlier the white robes that we spoke of in in Revelation chapter 7. I'll go over that one more time. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus became a man so that his righteousness as a man may be ours in him. Philippians chapter 3 Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safer for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, this is Paul speaking, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that came from the law, which Paul just boasted, was blameless but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So these white robes, this righteousness is the very righteousness of God the righteousness of the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son, the Eternal Son, who took on flesh 
to take my place. Being found in him by faith means that your sins became his and were atoned for perfectly and finally on that cross. But not just that, that his righteousness became yours. When it comes to our justification, when it comes to our salvation, there is nothing to be added to the work of Christ. Galatians chapter 3, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So to wrap up, I have touched on five sort of key aspects of the incarnation, the reasons why Jesus needed to become a man. These were his virgin birth, the redemptive character of God, Jesus as the last Adam, Jesus as the spotless sacrifice, and finally Jesus, Jesus' own righteousness being counted as ours. However, these five key points are by no means exhaustive. The Son of Man became flesh for so many more reasons. To highlight a few of them, to be the one mediator between God and man, to rule over creation as man, to be our example in humanity, to be the firstborn of the dead, the first with a glorified, resurrected body, to be our perfect and final prophet, to be our perfect and final priest, and to be our perfect and final king. So with that, let us celebrate Christmas with the joy and conviction that our Lord Jesus Christ literally took on flesh and fulfilled his mission on earth, not just to save sinners, but also to bring glory to himself. First Samuel chapter 12, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your your plan of redemption which you had formulated before the world began. Thank you for sending your Son to live and to die in our place, that in him we may have salvation. Jesus, thank you so much for doing that task willingly and joyfully and perfectly. Thank you that you are our prophet. You are the perfect word and revelation of God. You are our high priest. You forever live to make intercession for us, Jesus. And you are our perfect and final king. The throne of David that you've established forever. Holy Spirit, thank you for applying the work of Christ in his life and death to those who believe. We pray that you bring us closer to, to the Son, that you sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. And let us celebrate this, this joyous occasion, this Christmas season, by putting our focus back on the person it belongs, on Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man. Amen. Um. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.